are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert! No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot, or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. The Bank Job, which came out in 2008. It was directed by Roger Donaldson. It stars Jason Statham, Saffron Burroughs, Stephen Campbell Moore, Daniel Mays, Michael Gibson, Richard Lintern, Alki David, Peter DeJersey, James Faulkner, Keely Hawks, Rupert Fraser, Hattie Morahan, Peter Bowles, Georgia Taylor, and David Suchet. The genre would be heist thriller. We're not bank robbers. Maybe that's why we could get away with it. So what's the verdict? We're bloody going for it. On the corner here's the bank, next door is the chicken inn, and at 189 Le Sac. We'll dig a tunnel in a safe deposit vault. They know what they're doing, these people, do they? No, absolutely. Professional criminals. Western Front guy. Over. No name's Eddie. Sorry, Dave. Over. Oh, no. Where'd these come from? You better come clean. Tell us what this is really about. If you would like to give us an itemized list... The whole point of having a safe deposit box is so that people like you don't know what's in it. We have to find those villains before your honest colleagues do. We could get seriously nicked in. I haven't had this much excitement since the war. There are a few films which I can recall seeing in theaters in recent years, and we're talking 15 years ago, if you're calling that recent, that I found to be a bigger surprise than this one. Now, I've never been a huge Jason Statham fan, which is why I might not have had the highest expectations when I first saw this, but he's pretty damn good in this intricate puzzle of a heist movie thriller. I was just blown away by how clever and suspenseful this film was. It also demonstrated that when given a real film to work with, Statham could play the everyman, finding himself in way over his head as well as anyone. His Terry Leather is relatable, smart, and pretty simple. She envies me. She being sarcastic. Suppose what she meant was money can't buy what we have. Didn't you used to go out with her? No, love. That was Kevin. He had this big thing for her. Oh, and you didn't? No. A lot of me and you, love at first sight. Oh, yeah. I remember that night. She was with your mate Audrey at that disco. Saw this gorgeous little bum in a pencil skirt. Thought I've got to have that. But Audrey, she already had a bloke, so I pulled you. <laughs> Cheeky son. Daddy, Daddy, come and dance with me. And part of the fun of this movie is watching Statham's character leading his mates who are all just purely reactive, figuring out his next move when dealing with a wide variety of characters, including brutal gangsters, corrupt cops, local smut lords, British Secret Service, and even members of the royal family. And this is all based on true events, mind you. Among the standouts in this extensive cast are Saffron Burroughs, who plays Martine Love, a former flame of Terry's who ropes him and his buddies into planning and executing the titular bank job. About a month ago, I got busted at Heathrow on a drug charge. This guy I know said he'd fix it to keep me out of jail, if I'd do him a favor. He knew I knew some villains. He wanted to set up a robbery to get these. Fucking hell. That would be the bloke you met in the Players Club. Same guy you said was trying to pick you up in the Globe, right? Yeah. But so who is he? 
He's a guy I met at the Sombrero Club. He works for some shady outfit in Whitehall. Hold on, hold on. What, you mean MI fucking five or six? We could get seriously nicked here, Martine. No, we couldn't. All Tim wants is the contents of box 118. The deal with him is we get to keep everything else. She cannily plays this former model who's fallen on hard times, now smuggling drugs, and who's adept at drawing people in, but ends up doing that to her detriment, leaving her feeling increasingly desperate by the time she kicks off this heist. There's also James Faulkner as Guy Singer, the local tailor businessman who ends up fronting the money to buy the abandoned store located near the bank so that the gang can tunnel from that basement into the underground bank vaults. Yeah, back in the 70s, you could do that, I guess. Faulkner just has fun with this role as a prim, upper-crust society type who still is not above getting into some down-and-dirty nastiness when it suits him. A bit tight under the arms, don't you think? Traditional fit, sir. If one can't raise one's hands above one's head, it tends to inhibit any impulsive acts of surrender. Since appearing in the bank job, he has also brought these same qualities to prominent roles in both Downton Abbey and Game of Thrones. He played Randall Tarley. And then there is the perennial stalwart of both British stage and screen, Hattie Morahan, stealing her scenes as Gail Benson, the undercover MI5 field agent who's trying to find a balance, strange balance, between serving her mission of infiltrating the criminal organization of reputed drug lord Michael X, while also getting a taste of free love with some of his most militant followers. It was that kind of time. Yep, from the opening credit sequence, which shows some very risque pool action involving a British royal who's being secretly photographed for blackmail purposes, this movie has a bit of a horny streak. But it serves the story as we see throughout just how increasingly dangerous it becomes for several characters, including Gail Benson, to indulge their worst impulses. So, we are settled 25% to run my girls till I return from Trinidad. It's alright, you don't have to worry. I look after your little flock of birds like they were my own. So long as you remember they are not your own. Lou, while I'm back in Trinidad, I can arrange for a shipment of some high-grade ganja. Not interested. Yeah. You want my opinion? I think drugs are responsible for the moral decay of this country's young. Ah, smart, smart, and more smart. And in case you couldn't tell, the story just gets increasingly convoluted. <laughs> yeah. But it all gels together as everybody involved plays their part, and the film even manages to navigate through some tricky racial politics at the time without calling attention to itself or bogging down the plot. This film is the textbook definition of a modern rewatchable. And this brings me to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. One notable aspect of this movie that really works is just the general retro vibe that it so nails about a distinct time and place. London in the early 70s. The clothes, the cars, the film stock that it's filmed on. It actually feels very much like a film which might have actually been made in 1971, which is when the story that is mostly based upon true events actually takes place. The only glaring weakness when it comes to transporting us to this era is actually its very modern-sounding synth score from J. Peter Robinson. And it's not a bad score, per se. It just takes you out of the movie sometimes. That said, I'm all the more impressed with the musical note that this movie ends on. And strangely, it's a modern cover of a generally very overused R&B standard, which I had thought I had heard enough of by this point. 
And we are talking about a song which has not only been covered by everybody under the sun, including the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Kingsmen, but it's also been featured in dozens of movies, from Cooley High to Animal House to Crazy Rich Asians over the past several decades. And that song would be Money, That's What I Want. The seminal rock classic first performed by Motown artist Barrett Strong in 1959. It's kind of amazing, but they find a way to make this song sound fresh again. When the movie first ends and it fades to black, we are watching a recounting of the real-life events which inspired this movie told in text over a black screen. And over this, we hear a menacing build-up to this song, thanks to Robinson, the composer. It's dominated by strings and heavy percussion with some building guitars in the background. And then, boom, we hear this raucous cover of the song by The Stories, an obscure Welsh rock band who formed in 2003, disbanded in 2010, and apparently never even released an official version of this track. This version just has a spot-on, breezy, garage band vibe of many rock bands of the time. It just perfectly captures the dangerous vibe of the movie which preceded it, and it just goes to show that there's always a way to make an old song sound fresh again. category would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. As much as I love the various characters and subplots which prop up throughout this caper, there is one side character and one actor who kept grabbing me even with limited screen time. And that would be Richard Lintern, playing MI5 agent Tim Everett, who kind of orchestrates this heist from behind the curtain, even though he's not directly involved. You see, it's his job to help the British government try to nab some juicy blackmail material which has been held by a local drug dealer who's apparently been masquerading as a civil rights activist. That would be Michael X, who apparently has several compromising pictures of prominent British officials at local sex parties in a safety deposit box of this very bank. And it's Tim who is having an affair with and has also arranged for Saffron Burroughs Martine to rope in her former boyfriend and his buddies to pull off this bank job. Yeah, basically the British government is outsourcing a bank heist in both an effort to serve his majesty's government and in a deal to keep Martine from being prosecuted for drug smuggling because she was just arrested. How could you lose control of the operation? I thought you were on top of this thing. Sir, it worked. They did the job. They robbed the vault. And we have no idea where the fuck they are. Do you know, an ugly thought has just occurred. Lots of money in that vault. Jewelry, bonds. You and your sweetie haven't cooked up something between you, I hope. You think I'd betray you? There are precedents. Two of our former colleagues now live in bloody Moscow. Let's hope they don't have another bidder. She won't cross us. She knows what we're capable of. How does she even know who the hell we are? I'm sure she'll contact me when she comes to her senses. Going anywhere else would be a death sentence. Tim appears throughout the movie, mostly having tense rendezvous with Martine, but also reporting back to his superiors, almost always reacting to this rapidly changing situation with a plum, looking suitably tense, but still unflappable regardless. 
Lin Turn just commands the screen whenever he pops up, to the point where I often found myself wanting to see where his story would go next. He just has a cool debonair presence. You have no idea the danger you and your chums are in, do you? Is that right? And why would that be? You've opened Pandora's box, you dumb prick. That's why. I know what's at stake. And I know how expendable we are. So I'm changing the deal. Oh, is that right? Yeah. You get all your nasty pictures. But here's the twist. We get indemnity. Fresh passports, safe passage out of the country. For the whole team. And an official signed document guarantee we won't be prosecuted and we won't be pursued. You can't be serious. You can bet your bollocks I'm serious. And we want it signed, sealed and delivered by a public figure of substantial authority. How about the Prime Minister? Yeah, I'll go there. And if you've heard this podcast, you know where I'm going. Even a Bondian presence, if you will. Just always dashing and clever as he plays every scene with a mixture of wit and weight. You get the sense that he's having some fun, but is still very cognizant of the weight of his mission here. Alas, this is not his story. And I have no complaints as to how Statham generally carries the movie as its main star. That said, I would have loved to have seen more of this character. And disappointingly, I have not seen Lintern really appear in anything notable since this film's release. But he leaves a mark. Terry, we were thinking, smart fellow like you, might have kept mementos of the event just in case. Case what? Things didn't turn out so nicely. If they should ever see the light of day, don't think we can't find you. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Now, even though this film is generally quite tense from the get-go, it's right around the 75-minute mark that the sense of danger that our protagonists find themselves in approaches a whole new level. Now that word has gotten out that this bank has been robbed and that the downstairs vault has been cleaned out, what results is a crazy flurry of activity from various, quote, villains around the area who apparently have valuable possessions in those said vaults. Most notably among them is local smut king Lou Vogel, played with full-on creepiness by David Suchet, and he has ordered his goons to start either taking out anyone from Terry's gang who they can find or to torture those who they feel can best lead them to their stolen documents. I want to tell you something, Mr. Schilling, because it'll save time. You see, I have a very jaundiced view of life. From what I see, most of it's corrupt, venal, and vile. And I'm just saying this so that you know that I don't have a better nature to appeal to or a compassionate street. I mean, you, you do understand, don't you? I think so, Mr. Vogel. Good. And sadly, the one they take hostage, right after visiting his dear old mother to give her most of his stolen cash, is dear old Dave, the warm-hearted, goofy-looking porn actor played by Daniel Mays, in a really nice, endearing performance. You see, it's not enough that they just worked over Dave, only to find out that he doesn't know where the rest of the gang is. Nope. Lou finds that he has to raise his intimidation tactics just a bit more by having one of his henchmen bust out a creaky metal sandblaster, which apparently can blow open instant holes through any surface. And guess who he aims it at? Yeah. Where's my stuff? I don't know. Look, I don't know anything about any bank robbery. Honest. Still an unconvincing actor, Mr. Schilling. I would love to say this is not going to hurt. But it is. Seriously, up until this point in the movie, there's been relatively little violence. 
But once this happens, anything goes. It's a very effective, scary turning point for the story, told sparingly with just the right level of visual and audio violence, ensuring that we, the audience, are sufficiently on edge all the way through the conclusion. And now the final category, the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Of course, none of this would work without a sure hand behind the camera, and that's where the director comes in. Even before this movie, Roger Donaldson had already proven to be a master at directing taut thrillers like No Way Out and 13 Days, and I think that this might actually be his best movie. I don't know how he does it, but he has crafted a British 70s-style crime film set in the 70s with a 2000s level of technical craft, which feels like it could have actually been made in the 1970s, yet has a labyrinthian plot jam-packed with enough different elements to fill out the full season of a 10-episode Netflix series. There's a lot here. And he keeps it under two hours. For helming what is very likely one of the better heist films of the 21st century, Roger Donaldson is the MVP. My rating for the bank job would be four and a half stars out of five. Happy 15th anniversary to a true gem of a crime thriller and certainly one of Jason Statham's best career performances. And no worries, he still gets to kick some ass in this movie before it all ends. And if you're looking to watch The Bank Job, it is currently streaming on Peacock TV. And that ends another vault-smashing review. Special shout-out to my lovely wife, Marlene Gershon, for producing this podcast, and to my lovely daughter, Ella Gershon, for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.